Okay, we're on page 27. I am aware that I have left certain questions behind, and a little more material. If so much material, I'll go back and I'll explain. <coughs> so yesterday we did the first half of this middle paragraph. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, which provisionally we took to mean we as the nation. Hashem, our God, took the power there with a mighty hand on such arms. Had not the Holy One both of you taken our fathers out, now we're not talking about the nation, we're talking about individuals. <coughs> then we are children of children who would remain in slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. Now this sentence, if he had not taken our fathers out, we would have been, not remained, because I remained in Hebrew, we would have been enslaved why should anybody think that? Every nation goes up and down. Every empire eventually crumbles. The Americans think they're going to be here forever. But uh, why should we think thousands of years later that if God had not taken us out, we would have remained slaves in Egypt? Uh, maybe the author of God uh, here has some source which indicates that God is committed to us being there forever, but in natural terms, <coughs> there's, there's no reason to think that that's true. And if you look carefully at the Hebrew, you will see that there's a shift in vocabulary, even though English translation doesn't register the shift, but there is a shift. The paragraph starts with the word avodim. Avodim means slaves. Right. And in the second sentence, it says we would have been mishubadim. Now, there's no reason to change a word unless you change the concept. There's some, some difference in, 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 the, in the meaning. Mishubad, in Hebrew, means a lean. L-I-E-N. A lean. When you uh, buy a house, Typically, you take a mortgage from the bank. And the bank, thereby, has a lien on your house. Now tell me, when you take a mortgage, buy the house, and the bank has a lien on the house, who owns the house? Essentially, the you bank. You own the house. You own the house 100%. It's your house. If anybody damages the house, he pays you. If somebody slips and falls in your house, you are liable for the injuries. You own the house. If, if oil is found underneath, it's your oil. You own the house. However, there's a restriction on your use of the house. And there's only one restriction, really, and that is you can't sell it until you pay off the lease, until you pay off the mortgage. But you are the owner of the house. But it's not free and clear. You're not owner free and clear. The limit on your use of it. For the Haggadah to express itself with the word Mishuabat here means something else. It doesn't mean you'll be slaves in Egypt, physically dominated by them and working for them. What it means is you may go free, but you'll never be free and clear. They will always have a lean on you. And for those of you who are Americans, you can see this right in front of your very eyes. Since 1865, there's been no slavery in the United States. But the black population is paying the fruits of slavery to this very day. They are 
still suffering the, the uh, results of the uh, slavery experience, slavery conditions, they exist as freed slaves. But the title slave is not totally lost. The fact that they have, don't have a, fa- a stable family structure, the fact that they don't have higher values, the fact that they don't have certain attitudes and, and um, habits that could lead to greater success, because it really had the restrictions taken off. So one could understand that God is saying, of course Egypt wouldn't have lasted forever. And of course you would have walked out. But you would have forever been freed Egyptian slaves. The impact of being slaves would have remained with you as part of your cultural identity. That didn't happen that way. God took us out. He took us out in in a way in which we could break with that past. Indeed, in 50 days, we could stand at at Sinai and receive the Torah. So we could overcome that slavery experience. That's an easy way to explain what that sentence means. Now it goes on. Even if we were all men of wisdom, understanding, experience, and knowledge of the Torah, it would still be an obligation upon us to tell about, okay, we'll examine that in a second, these exes from Egypt. The more one tells about the exes, the more he's grateful. The woman, if I remember who was Mashiach here, <coughs> was a, a very considerable thinker, pointed out that, on the surface anyway, this statement is a little peculiar. If you want to communicate something, other things being equal, you uh, do it with as few words as possible. There's no point in just increasing words. You, know, you don't want to leave anything out, and you want to say enough to be understood. But to add words risks confusing the person who's listening, risks wearing out his patience, (coughs) risks overloading his circuits. You want to be as concise as possible. When the Haggadah says, the more one tells, the more place where it is, it sounds like you should do more and more telling. Say more and more words. Just keep talking. Several women, that's an indication that the purpose of this exercise is not communication of information. That's not what's going on. If you're adding more and more words, you're not just communicating ideas or facts. Think of poetry. In poetry, you can have lots and lots of words and they don't serve to communicate more facts. Edgar Allan Poe wrote a poem called Bells. At the end of each stanza, the word bells appears there about 15 times. The bells, 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 bells. Everybody <coughs> reads it well, by the time you halfway through the poem, you can hear them. You can hear them ringing. Not communicating more information by saying bells 15 times. You're creating an experience. Said a woman, and placing it on Svasemis, because a woman came from. Um, the the um, <coughs> speaking at the at, at the side of the Hagora, speaking at the Seder is not 
essentially, not even primarily, a matter of communicating information. After all, what does the previous sentence say? Even were all men of wisdom understanding, experience, and knowledge of the Torah, it would be a mitzvah to tell over the story. Well, if we really were men of wisdom, understanding, experience, and knowledge of the Torah, is it likely we're going to learn something new? Not likely. After all, imagine a person who's as ancient as I am. You know, I'm 63. I've been doing this for more than 40 years. Is it likely that I'm going to hear, or if I'm reading the Seder, say something? I'm going to say it. If I'm reading the Seder, it's unlikely I'm going to say something I don't know. Though, as those of you who've been with me, I know that sometimes in the middle of this year I do get a new idea. It does happen. So again, there's an indication that you're not communicating information here. Something else is going on. Now, the answer to something else has a lot of ramifications, and I'll do it more completely when we have more information on the test. Uh, but I'll tell you what Bowman said here, and again, based on the It also says, with Safer Beth, it's yes, it's right. Now, in Hebrew, when you have a verb followed by a noun, object of the verb, usually you say S. Or you can leave anything out. You put a lot of it in. Let's not be means a personal involvement in the story. The personal involvement in the story. That's just reciting information. And it says that Moses went out of the palace by, and he saw the Jewish people by Yar Sam. It doesn't mean, didn't mean that he saw their suffering. It means that he experienced their suffering. He empathized with their suffering. The base indicates a personal experience of what's going on, not just in a detached fashion, observing it and registering it and perhaps describing it. Now, Dessler, with Bullman, Bullman pointed out that in Hasidic sources, the word that we use for the holiday, Tatach, is broken into two words, Pe, so, the mouth. Recites. The mouth speaks. Sachmis is a word for speaking. Like, like a siyadi conversation. And he explained it as follows. In Egypt, there was not only physical slavery, there was an almost complete loss of Jewish identity. The Midrash says that when God was saving the Jews and punishing the Egyptians, the angels complained, why are you punishing this group and saving that group? They both worship idols, don't they? And they complained to the angels to God. Chazal uh, say that of the 50 gates of defilement, the Jewish people had already passed through 49. They were on the edge of spiritual annihilation. Now, speech is the faculty with which you express your identity. Nothing about you expresses your identity other than speech. There's no other way for a person to appreciate who you are and what you are without speech. Actions are ambiguous. Actions can be read in 13 dozen ways. That's what's wrong with our academic friends, the paleoanthropologists 
people try to do anthropology on the basis of archaeological remains and remains of proto-humans supposedly from 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago and so forth and so on you have no language from them the oldest linguistic remains go back about 5,400 years before that we have no linguistic remains without linguistic remains you cannot understand why the person does what he does you can't understand what it means to him you can't understand what it expresses for him I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of those cave paintings in France supposedly painted uh, 30,000 years ago they are enchanting they're awesome they're beautiful they're, they're the artistic merit of them is really outstanding why did they paint those paintings? well one theory is that they were preparing for the hunt and this was a way of working up magic to have a successful hunt another theory is that they were celebrating a successful hunt after the hunt a third theory is that they were starving to death and they were painting pictures of these things to sort of assuage their hunger a fourth theory is that they were, they were artistically uh, gifted and they enjoyed painting art right and you could use your imagination to dream up another dozen theories there's no way to tell language expresses your identity Narrow Pullman said these people this group of people the Jews in Egypt to a considerable extent lost their Jewish identity that means they lost Jewish speech when the exodus took place there was a recovery of Jewish identity which means there was a recovery of Jewish speech imagine a person goes blind and he's blind for 10 years and then he has an operation that restores his sight what will he want to do? he will want to see he will want to look and see to see what? the cracks in the sidewalk the sky, you know, the pavement the, the, the trucks just to be able to see exercising that faculty which he hasn't had for 10 years will be a great joy to him this of woman is part of what's going on yes the more you speak about the exodus the more praiseworthy it is because you are exercising your faculty of Jewish speech and whether you express new ideas or old ideas or say the same ideas over and over again it makes absolutely no difference you're talking you're talking as a Jew because you recovered your identity as a Jew and that's why the name of the holiday can be understood as Pesach the speaking mouth the mouth that speaks and that's why it says no matter how smart you are no matter how much story you know no matter how much you understand it's a mitzvah to to uh, um, identify with the story that you tell the Sopher B see if it's right and the more you do that the more grateful it is that's a beautiful beautiful idea which I heard from myself um, Kaiser, I think, 30,000 years ago Well, not, I, that's what I said, according to their dating system, right? I, I'm not agreeing to that dating system. Yeah? Isn't the Jewish idea that a person's actions are much more important than the words that he says? And in general, some of these, there's plenty of people who say all sorts of uh, things that uh, might uh, associate them. 
themselves with uh, good people, for example, and their actions are not good. And other people talk much less and, and do more good. Uh, and then the, their, their identity, uh, and they're just being defined by, by their actions. You work play, have this speech, and speech is something obviously that you, you exercise, but what happens is interact with. Well, now, you, you said two things, and uh, the first thing you said, I, I would agree with 100%, is not relevant to what I was talking about. And the last thing you said doesn't follow from the first thing, and, there, and therefore there's a discontinuity there. I said nothing about what's more important, words or actions. I said nothing about that. You said a person's identity is derived solely from his speech. That had nothing to do with what's more important. That had nothing to do with what's more important. Has nothing to do with what's more important. That's a separate issue altogether. What's more important, speech and actions? Okay, number one. Number two, speech is an action. When a person speaks, he's acting. It's an action. To divide speech from actions is very artificial. Number two. Well, we do number three. I was talking. Of course, I wasn't saying that when a person lies, he's expressing his essence. I didn't say that. When a person lies, he doesn't express his essence. Right? So, I'm saying, but I will say, I did say, and I will reiterate, that without speech, you cannot tell his essence. And from the actions that he performs, you certainly cannot tell his essence. Why does he give to everyone? Because he's generous? Because he needs people's support? Right, there's a syndrome in children. They steal to give presents to the other students in the class, so the other students will like them. Right? That's not generosity. That's fear and low self-belief. Right? Or are you gathering their support so the lady you can cheat them out of their, their houses? If you don't have speech, you don't know what the, the action expresses. You cannot tell a person's essence from his action. So that from his speech. Oh, I, you can. But not if he lies, of course. But if he tells you what he means and what he wants and what his, what his motivations are, then you can get evidence for what it is. But if he doesn't tell you, there's no way he can get it. Of course, if he lies, you won't know. Like so if, if a speech is a kind of a, is just one kind of action that the person can have, that you, you can uh, derive information about him, <coughs> like, why couldn't you derive that same information from his actions? If his actions aren't... If the book has a cover and the book has papers uh, pages inside, why can't you get the same information from the cover that you get from the pages inside? Because the inside has information engraved in it, and the cover doesn't. Now, the fact that it's a person, you know, why don't you get engraved when he's sleeping? It's the person, and it's just the person's action, so why don't you get when he's sleeping? Because when he's sleeping, he's not expressing his essence. Not everything a person does expresses his essence. But speech expresses his essence. When he wants it to, of course, if he wants to hide his essence, he can do that as well. But without speaking to you to tell you about his essence, you'll never have a clue what his essence is. Apparently, in the end of the old man, they say, buried is dead. I actually read a paleoanthropologist who said this proves that he was religious, that he believed in God, he believed in a soul, an afterlife, and all the rest of that. <laughs> Give me a break. Now, one sentence would do it. One sentence from them would do it. We dedicate this statue to the souls of our department who are living in the afterlife. We'd know right away what they believe. But the fact that they buried their dead tells you nothing. You can think of a dozen explanations for why they buried the dead. Only language can give you a clue as to a person or community's essence. Without language, you can't have it. Don't misunderstand me. I don't say that 
before 5,400 years, they didn't have language. What I'm saying is, we don't have any of their linguistic remains. We don't have any of their linguistic remains, so then we can't know <coughs> what they were doing. Okay. Back to work. My Sibir Five great Tanoim were sitting in B'nai Brak. Reclining. That's what it says, actually. In B'nai Brak, it's a Seder. They discussed the Exodus. Saying, stop reading B. The whole night until Yeah, all that night, correct? Until their students came to them and said, Our teachers, it is time for the morning Shema. Now this is very enigmatic. This is a very, I find this still challenging. I don't have any good explanation for part of it anyway. But let's just point out, some of the, one of the, some of the commentators point out <coughs> that every one of these five did not descend from slaves in Egypt. Every one of them was not a descendant of slaves in Egypt. Because some of them are Levim and some of them come from converts. So part of the point here is, you might think, okay, it's a holiday and we're supposed to tell over the story and it happened, it happened to my ancestors. So I feel a sense of detachment, you know. Okay, it happened to your ancestors and then why you feel personally involved. For me, you know, <laughs> okay, I'm doing it. It's pro forma. No. They, they got so involved in it that the whole night went by and they weren't even aware that the night went by and they told me they had to come and tell them this time the priest might have shot. Okay. The mitzvah is all night. Terrific. Why didn't the Talmudian just come and tell them the favorite? Why did you tell me it's time for Krishna Shah? True. They break, it's a good time to say Krishna. Very nice. But the, the masters here don't need this. I'll need them to tell them that they break is a good time to say Krishna. So there are people who want to say nighttime is exile. Daybreak is redemption. <coughs> those symbols are throughout the Tanakh that's true and that they were involved in working within their exile reality and now it's time for a new reality Krishna from the oneness of God in response to the new reality of redemption you could say that but bothers me about that I don't know how you'll take to this but what bothers me about that is in our tradition that the disciples will reveal something to their masters that the masters don't know is not typical it's so atypical that it's hard for me to think of a single example of such a thing uh, Judaism traditional Judaism is not a youth centered religion or culture uh, nowhere is a person praised for being young Many, many, many sources of people are praised for being old. Uh, no one says, "Ho," oh, you know, proud of his youth and or even youthful looks. The Gospel of Isaiah, 
at a very young age became the head of Sanhedrin and a miracle took place and he went white overnight. He was, he was so grateful. He shouldn't look like a, a schnook, you know, like a baby <laughs> being the head of Sanhedrin. No, his white hair, he looks like a person who's worthy of it. Why would the Talmudim be the ones to come to the rabbis and say that the time is over? I have no good explanation for that to this day. It's been bothering me for decades. I've asked a lot of people. But at any rate, um, this is an example of how it was done. Now, those of you, when you, when you learn some Talmud, you, you'll realize that this is, there's a certain literary form for discussions in the Talmud. You have a Mishnah. Then you have other sources, usually, which are on a par with the Mishnah. Other ten Eidic materials. You have verses from which the thing is derived. Then you have disputes about how it should be understood and how it should be applied. And the end of the discussion is usually a practical case. A case where people actually carried it out. So uh, you had the, the four questions and you had the basic statement of what it is we have to do. And I have an example of how it was done. It uh, more or less follows the standard from your style. Okay. Now comes a very indicative little paragraph. Over Rosemontaria. I am like a 70-year-old man. This is the, oh, referring to what I told you about. He was really, I think, 17. He became the other Hedron, and then he became white overnight. So he said, I'm like a 70-year-old man. I was not successful. Now, what it says literally is, in, in having the exodus from Egypt fed at night. I wasn't successful in having it said at night. What he means is, I wasn't successful in bringing a proof to my position that it should be said at night. Until Ben Zoma explained that the verse tells us in order to remember the day of your exodus from the land of Egypt all the days of your life. Now why is that phrase all the days of your life. Wouldn't the days of your life be enough? If it said the days of your life, would you think, oh, but not Mondays and Thursdays? Or, oh, but not the 16th of every month? If it said the days of your life, of course it would be every day of your life. There's no way to exclude any particular day. So why did it say all the days of your life? Benzoma said, the phrase the days of your life without the all would be the daytime period. The all would come to include even the nighttime period. So, says Rosman Azariah, when I heard this thrush from Benzom, I thought, oh, I have a proof of my position. But, my colleagues didn't give up. My colleagues didn't accept the proof. They said, it's true, the verse has to teach you something, but it teaches something else. The days of your life without the all refers to this world. Call the extra all the days of your life comes to include the era of the Messiah. Okay. Now, before we go into the details here, what are we talking about now? Well, what mitzvah are we talking about now? Shema. Hmm? We're talking about the Shema. In particular, the third paragraph of the Shema, which talks about the Exodus from Egypt. Should you say that third paragraph only in the daytime? But you should say it at night also. Elizabeth says you say it at night also. And then the Romans say, no, you don't have to say it at night. 
what they're doing in the Haggadah. Who cares about that? We are in the middle of a once a year mitzvah. The mitzvah of retelling the Exodus of Egypt on the night of the 16th, of the 15th of, of, of Nisan. Why are we taking a Mishnah from Brachos discussing that mitzvah that occurs 365 days a year? And which indeed we didn't show before we came home. The best answer here is that this is included to tell you what you're not doing. Yes, in Brachos it talks about a mitzvah to mention the Exodus, to mention it. Remember through speaking about it. Mention it. 365 days a year. That's not what you're doing at the Seder. First of all, if that's what you were doing, you did it in Shulra. You don't have to do it again. But secondly, it's to set off what's going on in the Seder as an entirely different category. Now think back what I said in the name of Rabbuma. We're not communicating information. We're, just not, we're not mentioning facts. We're telling a story in such a way that we can identify with the story. So this mission is here is to tell you, understand, that the mitzvah of mentioning it on the one hand and reciting the Haggadah, the Seder, are two different performances. They have two different goals. Okay? Now, let's understand. Why is it called Magid? Does a Magid mean to tell? Shouldn't be some word for experience? That's a good question. Actually, you could ask it stronger. And that's a very good question. The verb Magid isn't used. I know, I, I know the answer is, but in the actual description of the mitzvah, it's the Sapir Pet. Right? It doesn't say Magid. And the reason Magid is used is because the verse in the Torah says he got it to the temple. That's why Magid is used. But you're asking, I don't know, that's a good question. When we describe the mitzvah in the text of Agado, we use the verb the Sapir. In particular, Sapir Pet. The Torah's word is Agid. And and that's why it's called I don't know I have to think about it it's a very good question very good question okay now let's understand we have a verse with a coal and the coal comes to add something and there's a dispute about what the coal should add should the coal add night time or should the coal add the time of the Messiah I'm going to teach you how to learn that. So if the call had to add something, it means that without the call, I wouldn't have had it. Which means there's reason not to have it. There's reason not to have it. Only the call comes and says, no, let's add it in. But this thing you're adding in has to be secondary. It can't be as primary as the thing you had without the call, because otherwise it would be included without the call. It's got to be secondary. There's going to be something against it. There's going to be some resistance. And the call says, I know, that's resistant, and it's not as primary as the other, but put it in anyway. Now, the dispute between Ben Zolma, and there was an Isaiah, took over his position, and versus the Chahamans, the dispute is, which one is secondary but closer, and which one is secondary and further away? So that you're going to use the call to include something, each one will say, there are two things that are secondary, but they're not equal, and the call will come to include the one that's closer, not the one that's further away. 
and the dispute will be which of the two secondary things nighttime or the messianic era which of the two secondary things is closer to the to the primary so that when you have the call it should, it should include it right that's the structure of the dispute here now let's see what's the resistance to nighttime and what's the resistance to um, the, the times of the messiah the resistance of nighttime is that when you're declaring God's unity and in the text of the Shema I'm sorry remember the Exodus from Egypt let's start again when you, are, when you are mentioning the exodus from Egypt, if you are in a condition of exile yourself, it may be hard to appreciate the significance of the exodus from Egypt. If you are in a position of freedom and possessing your own land, the temple is built and the miracles are going on there all the time, that's one thing. But if you are you are subject to a repeat of exile, then it's not obvious that you can appreciate and really register what the exodus of Egypt meant. We'll talk about that in more detail. At any rate, it's certainly not as much as the daytime. And therefore, it says it was in Isaiah, the call comes to include even nighttime. One second. What other common say? It's, uh, there's a resistance to saying, to mention the exodus from Egypt at the times of the Messiah. Now this is based on an explicit verse. There's a verse in the prophet that says, when I take you back, ultimately, no longer will it be said, the God who took you out of Egypt, but it will be said, the God who took you from the lands of the north and brought you back. The verse actually says that the miracles and the effect of the ultimate redemption will be so much greater than the exodus from Egypt, the exodus from Egypt will certainly be less, it will pale but in comparison to the ultimate redemption. So, the thought is, maybe that's the time when you shouldn't mention the exodus from Egypt. Maybe mentioning the exodus from Egypt would be in a certain way degrading, as if to say, you know, that's all you did. So, the rabbis say, I need an extra word, all, to tell me even at that time when we will have experienced a much greater redemption the earlier redemption still has to be mentioned so you, are, you can understand why there's resistance to nighttime and why there's resistance to the times of the Messiah and now there's a disagreement between us and Messiah and where the resistance is greater ok that's the structure of the Mahlites in this in this mission yeah how is, how is freedom I said yesterday about uh, freedom as being engraved on the on the on the tablets or something. I, mean, I don't, I don't no, think. No, I'm, 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 you're just talking about the redemption there. Yes. And I'm thinking, well, what is it that's going to take everyone to, to this redemption? And I presume it's mitzvahs. Oh, so I see. So you're basing it on your calculation. I, I couldn't see what I whether how it what I said. Well, the redemption could take place in a variety of different ways. One could be spectacular performance of mitzvahs, and if that doesn't happen, God forbid, then it happen other ways. I mean, I, but 
Okay, let, let me see if I can say something short and useful about this. Um, Yes, see, I, I, I said redemption. I didn't say freedom. I, I, so redemption means you are now able to serve God fully, as against um, you know where the official classical statement of Jewish Zionism is. This is worth knowing. Uh, let me have the brown book. Um, you say this twice a day. The official Jewish statement of Zionism. Yes. Only off by one page. That's pretty good. Now, um, in the repetition of the Shemona Esrei, when the reader repeats, and you come to Modim, the gray paragraph in the, in the Heligera article, you say the following. So may you continue to give us life and sustain us and gather our exiles to the courtyards of your sanctuary to observe your decrees and do your will and to serve you wholeheartedly. That's science. Yes. Gather our exiles to observe your decrees, to do your will and serve you wholeheartedly. That's science. Right? So that's I don't know whether you want to call that freedom or how we would exactly describe that as freedom. It should be, but it's a, it's a subject that needs to be discussed. But that's what we're looking for, a redemption which will enable us to come back to the land of Israel to keep his mitzvot and to serve him for life. And if we perform mitzvot under, 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 under difficult conditions, you, you invest yourself to do it under those conditions, so I'll never even do it under more favorable conditions. Okay. Now comes an introduction to the four sons. The four sons is a world. It's a world. I don't think I'll do it until, until tomorrow because it needs very special attention. But let's look at this factor. Blessed is the hmm, omnipresent. Okay. The word in Hebrew is makom. Makom means place. Capital T. Blessed is he. Blessed is the one given the Torah to his people Israel. Blessed is he. The Torah spoke about four sons. How many times do you have the word blessed in the couple of lines? Four. And he had four sons. Maybe there's a correspondence. Four blessed, four children. Of course, you want to ask, what about the wicked son? Does the blessed go on the wicked son also? Hmm. Okay, now let's see. The first one is Mako. That's a funny thing. You call God place. Ha Mako, the place. As I'll say, who He is the place of the universe. The universe is not his place. Okay, I understand the second half. You don't locate God. Where is God? Gosh, the last time I checked, he was in Tiberias. But maybe he's moved to to, to Tzfas. 
That's absurd. God doesn't have a place. A localized God. And even the temple in Jerusalem, which I suppose a simple-minded, naive six-year-old could think is God's house, when Solomon built it, and he went down on his knees and gave a long dedication, one of the things Solomon says is that the heavens and the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you. What then of this house that I have built? You don't have to be a clever 20 or 21st century theologian to know that God doesn't dwell in a house. Solomon who built it knew very well that God doesn't dwell in a house. The house is a place where God manifests his presence in a favorable, in a favored way. But he certainly doesn't have a particular location. So I understand, as I'll say, that the world is not his place, that's of course quite correct. What would it mean to say is that, that he is the place of the world? He doesn't have spatial dimensions. and say, you know where the world is? The world is under his left shoulder. I mean, it's ridiculous. What do you mean he's the place of the world? Now, in the deeper literature, the idea is something like this. What role does place have in the existence of the world? Anything you think of takes up space, right? Tables take up space. Molecules take up space. Smoke takes up space. What would happen if there were no space? Then there couldn't be any table. There couldn't be any molecules. There couldn't be any smoke. No mountains. No baseball games. They all take up space. Space makes everything else possible. Without <coughs> space, none of it is possible. Now, abstractly, that's what we mean when we talk about place. We don't mean 25 miles due north of Beijing. The word place refers to making things possible. Means that it is his will that makes the world possible. And the Ramchal says in a number of scores, this happens in stages. He creates the world first by creating its possibility, the ground of its existence. And only afterwards does he realize that possibility, that potentiality, by making it into the items that we see. So it's he. Now, speaking in something which is absolutely crucial, but I'm not going to explain. He may, by he, I mean his will. His will is the place of the world, means his will gives the possibility of everything's existence. Afterwards, it also gives the reality of their existence. But the word makom refers to the possibility of existence. Here, you're talking about God in the most fundamental, most fundamental um, description that we can imagine that he makes everything else possible the word who in Hebrew he in English is third person there's a gigantic difference between third person and second person reference and it's characteristic of rabbinic literature throughout What's the difference between you and he? Think 
try to think in fundamental terms. What's the fundamental, most important difference between the word you and the word he? <coughs> when the close one's removed. Okay, say it more, more specifically. It's not just a question of relevant distance. Well, when I say I thought he's like right here, and when I thought he, he's, he's not here. Right, so not just close and far. It's not that one's 100 miles away, and the other's 5,000 miles away. At all, you can only be said to someone who's present. You can only refer to someone with the word you if he's present. He can be used to refer to someone who's absent. When you use third person reference to God, you're usually referring to God in a sense of removedness, distance, beyond real understanding, beyond experience, unrevealed, hidden, When you use Atto, you're referring to the way in which he communicates to us, the way in which he shows himself to us. Now, when you start, blessed is God as the ground of the existence of the universe, that's definitely removed. And you of who? The little bit of a puzzle is to explain the next one. Blessed is he who gave the Torah to the Jewish people. And that's third person. Not for at all. For Shenosan Torah, the Mo Israel, Shenosan, not Shenosatov, but Nosan, that he gave, Rahu. Which indicates that even though he did reveal himself at Sinai, there was an element of removedness even in his revealing himself. There was an element of removedness even in his revealing himself. Now let's see. I told you something maybe three or four weeks ago. We talked about this. A symptom of the idea that even in revealing himself, there was something removed. Something beyond in the revealing. All the people saw the voices. All the people saw the voices which from the point of view of our lives is an impossibility. You can't see voices. You hear voices. They had an experience that utterly transcends our experience of our world. And the point of that experience was to communicate to them that they were in touch with something that utterly transcends our world. They're interacting with something which can't be understood as an element in our world. Because in our world you don't see voices. That doesn't happen. So even though they're experiencing it, they're experiencing it in a way which, so to speak, leaves them breathless. It leaves them without capacity to grasp, to conceptualize, to relate it, to compare it to anything. It's an experience utterly unlike any other experience that any human being has ever had. Even normal prophecy, even normal prophecy is not described that way. Whether it's Isaiah or Ezekiel or whatever you want. I don't think any other experience is described in those terms. They saw that which is usually heard. So even though there is a certain great revelation when God gave the Torah to Sinai, there was also a sense of transcendence. And that's what I think justifies saying Boraku again, blessed is he, and by saying it in the third person, blessed is he who gave, not blessed are you that gave. Okay?
Tomorrow we'll talk about the Shem. Four sons.